0: Welcome to Navigating Pain, the place where we help 100 million Americans figure out how to get better. Thankfully, modern science is evolving, and in each episode I'll bring on an expert, someone who works with patients like you with back pain, migraines, digestive issues, and more. Our hope is to help you get your life back. This podcast is created by Remedy a science-backed program for pain reversal. See the description below for access to free tools and education. My guest today is Dr. Heather Martorella. She began working with patients with chronic pain in 2006 during a postdoctoral fellowship in chronic pain. In 2012, she sustained an injury during an adventure trip to Costa Rica that resulted in her own chronic pain and ultimately led to a full career shift to work exclusively with these folks. Heather, welcome. I'm really excited to, to chat with you today. Maybe we can start simple and, and just dive right in. Could you talk to me and, and our listeners more about how you got interested in chronic pain and what you do now?
1: So I had an injury accident in 2012 in Costa Rica, and it took me a while to recover. And it was, you know, acute pain. Obviously, initially developed into chronic pain. I think I was primed for it uh, through early life experiences, all those fun things that sure. we we're, you and I are familiar with, right? That can really predispose people to developing chronic pain. And that changed my purpose. I mean, my one of my core values is really being of service to others. But now the focal point of who I'm going to serve shifted.
0: It's incredible. I, I love meeting people who have their own stories and can really relate to what their patients are going through. That's that's really powerful. Before I ask you more about that, I I just want to understand when you say shifted your perspective, did you move into a different profession? Uh, what happened from there?
1: I did a second postdoc, did it at Kaiser, started seeing patients who had chronic pain. It was not in a pain management program. It was actually in a mental health program, but Patients were being referred in to this mental health department uh, with chronic pain conditions, people who weren't being seen in a pain management program, um, some of whom were, but some of whom weren't, and um, had... anyway. One patient in particular pops to mind who needed to have her knees replaced. And we really talked a lot about how much it was impairing her quality of life, her marriage, um, sexually, her self-identity, her sleep, all of these things. And I feel like there was some ways in which I was helpful for her. Um, She thought it was helpful for her in the time that we worked together during that postdoc. But looking back on it years later, after I had my own injury in 2012 and realizing the extent to which it really impacts a life Mm -hmm. Um, it it really put in perspective for me that it was good that I actually didn't work with people with chronic pain in an ongoing way after that. I mean, it was her and there were other people and I feel like I did some helpful work for them, but I would have done it very differently if I'd known and experienced what I had, you know, in 2012 and beyond.
0: Yeah. And those are some difficult moments when you're kind of in the throes of that. Um, so it sounds like you coming back to your experience, uh, Mm um, And now you have some of this language to talk about it, which is wonderful. Um, You were saying that your nervous system was primed and then you had this injury. Could you maybe take us through the chronology there as much as you feel like sharing?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think there had been um, some challenges. Of course, we all have challenges in life, right? But if you're looking at like those, the ACEs score, adverse childhood experiences, a pretty high number. And I felt like I was a survivor as I was going through my life. Uh, my young adult life even, right? Feeling like I'd really survived um, a fair amount and uh, felt rather confident in my ability to take care of myself. And I think I was doing well in life. And then I had, I mean, there were a lot of stressors and I don't know that I was handling stress all that wonderfully at the time that I had the injury accident. Um, And then I had the accident and Because I think my nervous system was already primed because of past traumas, even though I felt like I had managed them well, I learned later that I hadn't sufficiently managed them, right, or really addressed them. I just kind of shoved them under a bit. So I think my body was still dealing with some of that. There's, you know, um, Vander Kolk's book about um, the body keeps the score. I think the body was storing it up for me, right? You're going to deal with this later at some point. So uh, then I had the injury accident. There was other trauma involved with that um, and there's a psychological aspect of it. There's a social component and then there was the physiological what occurred right in the actual incident and then the fallout um, from it. And it just kind of ballooned from there. And, uh, and I was loving what I was doing. I was, I was on an adventure tour in Costa Rica and it was the second to last day of the trip. And I was rappelling down a waterfall and swung into the waterfall to bounce off, kick off again. And I guess there was a bit of a cave behind the waterfall at that part. And I went in and I had one of those low hip harnesses on and the water just hit me in the face instead of kind of being, you know, like maybe waist high. And I went back far and the water was hitting me. And the belay guy on the ground, apparently was his third day on the job um, and they had just started this company and I hadn't researched the company well. It was very new. Um, It was their third third day of doing this and he panicked when he saw me flailing around a bit with the ropes and the water all in my face and I had a helmet on and so he just dropped the rope and I fell onto the rocks below and that was horribly painful so I have uh one picture that a friend who was up at the top that I was traveling with took of me down below and it's just this blurry picture of me like sprawled out but I was so grateful to have this helmet um but I did have injuries of course from this fall
0: yeah What, what was happening both in the brain and body, the one unit, can you describe what now, what you know, but looking back,
1: there were other emotional stressors that I wasn't dealing with at that time. Part of it was, it wasn't just me who was thinking I was damaged. It was also someone that I was in a relationship with was feeling like, Hey, you can't do what we used to do. Right. We were activity partners. And so uh, they weren't saying this is not going to work for me, but other activity partners did kind of fade away. Cause I wasn't doing the things I had done. So you know, these weren't close friends, but I hear with a lot of patients, oh, my spouse is wanting to divorce me or, you know, that it gets really extreme for a lot of people. I didn't have it to that extreme, but just the ways that it was impacting my work, the way that I dressed, I used to be someone who went to work in high heels daily, right? And high, high heels and loved it and had a very different way of presenting myself. And that changed. Now I'm going to work in tennis shoes and my clothes are becoming more, less, uh, more, more casual business, casual style, right? Less dresses and such. And um, it's more about comfort and just getting through the days. Um, I was using a standing desk instead of being able to sit any longer. Um, there was, and so that changed just the ways that I interact with my students when I'm standing up and teaching a class. And um, yeah, it just impacted so many different areas. And I wasn't really dealing with, uh, I think a lot of the emotional impact it was having on me in all these other areas. I knew it was really impairing my sleep. Um, But I didn't want to deal with some of those that felt like um, losses, right? I didn't want to acknowledge those losses necessarily. So I just kept really busy and yeah, focusing on other things instead of dealing with it. And then it wasn't really until I'd already transferred. I was at a different – I transferred to the hospital work at that point, working only with people with chronic pain, a pain management program, um, that I was really seeing good improvement at that point. And my flare-ups were pretty – Um, I'm not going to say intermittent, they were inconsistent and they didn't reach the levels that they used to reach at all. And so my functional improvement was significant. Um, But there were still some things that I wasn't doing. There were still some things that were adapted, uh, that I do in adaptive. um, I do some like adaptive devices basically, and things that I was modifying some of my behaviors around and still some things that I was avoiding. Right. And then I think I just worked through that more fully in part by um, hearing patients and their resistance and then that helped me see some of my own resistance to things as well. So there's a bit of a parallel process there. So at this point, I haven't had a flare up in quite some time. Um, I would say probably two years, we're in 2021, yeah. Yeah, but even about two years ago or so, I had about a, maybe three years now, I had about a three-month flare-up. Um, I was like, wow, okay, this is a lot of stress. And I did make some big changes. I changed jobs um, to a different pain management program, but I was still doing some things like that, right? Recognizing how much stress was really playing a role in my physical experience. So uh, I think having that awareness helps.
0: Yeah, powerful. Wow, going from such a, I mean, amazing and scary accident where that picture kind of looking down on you I'm just kind of visualizing that <laughs> yeah. to now when you haven't had a flare-up in years. Could, no. Is this possible for a lot of people that you see?
1: No, no, this is quite possible for a lot of people that I see. And I, I shouldn't say I haven't had any flare-up in years, but I haven't had something that took me down for a day, right? So I will get pain. It's not that it doesn't pop up on occasion, but it's something.
0: What are some of the big kind of components that you teach people?
1: I think uh, mindfulness is a big piece of this, right? Um, Mindfulness practices, how we go about things in our day-to-day life, uh, looking at trauma, really, like what has occurred in our lives that may be being expressed now by our body uh, that may not have been able to be expressed either verbally or in some other way, getting it out. So there's um, repressed trauma that the body is letting us know about, right? Hey, you have to deal with me and it's going to get louder until you deal with it right so um and it's going to continue to be disruptive so there's that um another component really is looking at people's sleep because if your sleep is poor you're pain receptors are just more reactive, right? You're going to have more of an inflammatory response. And if you're also not dealing with any of the emotional distress related to it, then your emotions get involved with the sleep. And we know that's a huge part of not being able to sleep is the anxiety, the worries, all the what ifs. And then you wake during the night, maybe because of pain, right? So we'll we'll do a lot about the sleep and how emotions get involved in impairing our sleep and how those emotions are generally related to the pain itself and what Losses may have come from the pain um, or things we're avoiding.
0: I'd I'd love to ask more about the sleep piece since that seems to be kind of one of the cornerstones. Okay. Maybe others are involved there. But if someone comes and they ask for some support on the sleep side, what education do you share with them? What tools do you share with them? Can you talk more about that side of things?
1: Sure. Yeah. So one of the first things is I want to find out if people have sleep apnea potentially, if they have already been diagnosed with sleep apnea and if so, if they are being treated for it and if not, why not being treated for it? Um, So that's one of the things I just kind of check in with them. One, do they even know what sleep apnea is? If so, then great. Is it being treated? Um, So if they're not getting enough oxygen to their brain because they stop breathing at night, right. Which is like a, like a, for example, obstructive sleep apnea where people are they just stop breathing during the night uh, while they're sleeping. That um, That is going to impair sleep quality and sometimes sleep quantity, not necessarily, but right. Um, and that's going to impact their pain and their thinking process and their ability to digest food properly and all of these things that all interact, of course, in our experience. Um, and then I'm going to ask people about the types of pain that, sorry, the types of sleep that is impacted for them because of their pain. So a lot of people have difficulty falling asleep. And so what is that's preventing them from falling asleep well? Is it can't get physically comfortable in bed because of the pain? Or is it the thoughts that they get in bed and their brain starts going, I have to get to sleep. Um, If I'm not able to sleep, I'm not gonna be able to function tomorrow at work. I'm not gonna be able to regulate my mood well. You know, I'm gonna feel like I'm on a roller coaster. Uh, My pain's gonna be worse. But what about this pain now? And the thoughts start rolling onto the pain and all the things that they need to get done, they can't get done, how they're not productive, um, how they may be feeling like they're worried about being perceived as lazy. Like all of the worst things that we call ourselves, right? The name calling and the things we tell ourselves that are harmful, they tend to be amplified when we get in bed and we don't have all the distractions of the day, the things to deal with. Um, So you get in bed, your brain has now associated likely your bed with pain and sleeplessness. So it's going to keep you awake just being in bed because your brain says, oh, I'm in bed. I wake up now and I worry. That's what I do in bed. So we need to start shifting that. So I find out what types of sleep difficulties people are having. And that's the most common is the difficulty falling asleep because of the pain and the worries related to the pain. And then the second most common one is that people wake during the night maybe they roll over, maybe they need to get up and take medication, maybe they get up and go to the bathroom, maybe they need water, whatever it is, the dog barks, someone rolls over, they wake up and they get back in bed and they can't return to sleep. And so this is sleep maintenance type of insomnia. And that can really make people feel very groggy the next day. Um, It can, anyway, it impacts people in a number of ways. I know we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but it's another big type that pops up. So the two most common are this difficulty falling asleep, waking during the night and difficulty returning to sleep. And so those are the two that are primary looking at. There are others. Um, there's actually four that I would end up assessing for, but that's, yeah. those are the primary ones that pop up with the pain I see most often. Um, so really addressing those with folks. And there are different interventions that can be used for each of those. And then there's some that kind of overlap both of those. Um, but really getting out of our head is gonna be important at that point, And that's a very difficult thing to do when you have, chronic pain that is of course sensitized the
0: brain right yeah so this is a kind of double-edged sword where you're coming in for pain and that's affecting sleep but that's also then maybe affecting how you feel um and so it's interesting to hear that you're kind of you can target the sleep to improve both um, and suggest certain tools and and interventions for people to use Um, yeah is that correct
1: that is correct. So I don't generally care for the zero to 10 scale of pain, right? Um, but I know we want to have some kind of quantifiable way of measuring pain, of, of measuring subjective pain, right? Because it's pain's invisible. Uh, so what I tend to see is if people are doing the tracking of what their pain level is, that if we do improve sleep sufficiently, we'll seeing at least a two to three point drop in their experience of their physical pain. And that's what I was seeing most commonly when I was working at this intensive outpatient um, pain management functional restoration program. Um, that we're seeing big drops like that. So sleep was a pretty important piece, uh, is a pretty important piece. And it helps stop that cycle of increasing pain because of impaired sleep. Too little sleep and then pain is amplified, right? And then maybe I do too much. I get caught up in a boom bust cycle. So there's a cycle that continues and it all feeds on itself. And I think of it more as like a downward spiral, actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: trying to help people get out of that.
0: Two to three points is huge uh, for, for most people. What are some of the suggestions that you give? Um, let's say maybe in the case that people can't fall asleep. Um, right. How do you work with them? And obviously, you know, it's probably an individual case by case basis. Um,
1: it but- is, but, there are big key points, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's the the basic sleep hygiene, right? That I generally don't go over much with folks. It's like here's kind of a handout on this, or here's a really quickie, you know, 15 minutes of a basic sleep hygiene. Because we know that that doesn't really change behavior so much. For some people, it might alter it a little bit, but it's really about the deeper sleep education and really having people understand what's happening in their sleep and what different stages of sleep their brain goes through during the night and what happens to their body during those different stages, their body and their brain really, right? So um, if we're not getting sufficient sleep, those first hours of sleep are really going to help with cellular restoration and physical healing processes, right? And I'm not talking about acute pain, but you know. Um, and then the later hours of sleep or the latter hours are going to really be helping with the motion regulation. We're going to get more of that REM, um, the dream state sleep, right? That's really gonna help with memory consolidation and our ability to learn and focus, comprehend things that are gonna be impairing our ability to function in our lives the next day if we don't get enough of that. So when people are getting really too little sleep um, and they're only getting those first hours of sleep, then I know there's gonna be more mood dysregulation. Mm -hmm. It's gonna feel like life's on a roller coaster, and they're gonna have more concentration difficulties and memory impairment and word finding difficulties, all of those things. So really educating people about Um, This sleep that they need to get, and then how to get some of that. People can say, Oh, well, that's great. So now I know that I get it, um, that I need it. Now I know I need it even more than I knew I did, right? Mm -hmm. So now what? Okay, great. So now we start looking at some of those brain associations. And if your brain is used to, uh, I feel like I'm falling asleep on the couch or I'm falling asleep somewhere in my you know, my home and I'm feeling really tired and I get in bed thinking, okay, I'm sleepy enough. I'm going to fall asleep. And I get in bed and right away my brain says, hello, let's worry. Right. Um, because the brain has associated the bed with worries and pain instead, right. Of just sleep and sex. And that's really all we want the bed for. So being able to talk with some folks about that, there's some of the basic um, healthy sleep hygiene in it, but now there's really, how does your your pain thoughts get involved and in keeping you awake and getting you more agitated and really impairing, your ability to sleep, and even when you do fall asleep, impairing the quality of it because your unconscious brain is still working on all of these worries, right? So sometimes there's something, there's a variety of things that I'll have people implement. Some people, it's as simple as doing a gratitude practice, maybe listening to a sleep story before bed, something that gets them out of their head and into their physical sensations, not focusing necessarily on pain, but there are some uh, mindfulness meditation practices that you actually do focus on those pain sensations, right? But with non-judgmental awareness and present moment focus. And so being able to go in with acceptance and look at those sensations for what they are, recognizing that they do ebb and flow and how they change uh, while we're in bed and then getting into maybe a body scan, also known as a passive muscle relaxation. Some people may look at them that way, but there are apps like calm and others insight timer and such that have these sleep, um, sleep stories people can listen to, there's autogenic scripts, uh, different things that people can get into that are going to get into their senses and out of their head and out of the worries. So their brain can kind of shut down. If we can put in some Um, gratitude practices. So people are ending their thinking process in the night, their bedtime routine ends with like this gratitude practice. Uh, What were some of the silver linings of the day, Uh, positive experiences, things are grateful for, we're ending on a positive note with our thinking and less distress. So we're more likely to be able to fall asleep at that point. There's different things that we do during the night if you wake up, but a lot of sensory practices um, out of the thinking
0: Yeah. um, To someone listening, and this is new for them, this might seem a little holistic. Uh, What what do you see in your patients? um, And how long does it take people to get the hang of some of these practices um, and to really start to see benefit for themselves?
1: So people who are going to make some of the more significant changes, if I'm doing cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is the research-backed, you know, empirically validated treatment for insomnia, if I'm doing that work with somebody and they're really motivated to make some of the recommended changes early on, then they can see dramatic difference within 30 days. Now, they're not going to like me the first two weeks of that. They're going to say, she's making me do these things. I hate this. What's wrong with her? I'm sleep deprived. This is worse than it was. Um, yes. And then you're going to start being able to sleep better. We're going to be resetting those circadian rhythms. And so people are going to be able to start sleeping better. Within 30 days, they can see pretty significant improvement. Now, is that the common? Not so much. When I was doing the intensive outpatient program and I had people, you know, five days a week and then four days a week um, for six to eight weeks, then yes, we could see pretty dramatic changes during that time. Uh, Significantly improved or fully recovered sleep, right? Um, Good quality sleep at that point and reduced pain along with it. But in practices where I'm working in the hospital, I get to see patients every four or six weeks. It's going to take quite a few months, right? Uh, Because I can't give all that information in a brief bit. So being able to give people videos that are available on this, um, there are workbooks that I recommend for folks. But really, it is a lot about that educational component. And it takes some time to get that and then for people to implement these practices, and sometimes people need some help with that accountability, getting through those first couple of weeks of it, because it can be challenging and people can want to walk away from it, um, not really trusting that it's going to benefit them. So sometimes learning from others who have seen real benefit, uh, at my pain reduced when I improved my sleep, um, then that's often encouraging for people and helps them stick with it.
0: Yeah, that's really important to see kind of the, yeah. the beacon or the example. Um, And maybe get some support from a friend or a spouse or or, or someone else.
1: No, I think peer support is so important. That's actually, I think, why a lot of this, um, doing a lot of pain therapy work with people in group formats is really helpful because pain can be so isolating, chronic pain, it's invisible. And so people feel like they're alone and they're suffering alone and others can't relate to it. So I'm glad you do. A group process with folks but also with the sleep piece if there's someone you're sleeping with in your home um then yeah it's probably impairing their sleep to some extent as well or there's irritation between the two of you potentially that also can be addressed and they can become kind of a um a support person in your new sleep habits yeah so, yeah
0: last question say someone starts to make these changes and starts to put in a lot of effort there do they have to maintain this for the rest of their life? Or is there something happening in the brain and body that is changing? I mean, Can you talk to the, the science there? Excellent question. Yes. So some
1: people will say, "Oh, so you don't want me to watch TV in bed anymore, or you don't want me to read in bed anymore." And those are so things that are really important to me, right? Is some of like the sleep hygiene work. I'm like, yeah, this is not something you have to do forever. I do recommend not doing those things in bed um, because of the brain associations. However, uh, if that's something that's really important to you, after your circadian rhythms have been reset and you are sleeping well and your pain is reduced, then yes, if you want to bring those in on occasion, special occasions. No more than two nights a week, right? Because you can really throw your circadian rhythms out of balance again. There's ways we can do these things in a modified way. So you're still getting the benefit, what it is that you enjoy from doing those things. So help people assess, what is it that that gives you? Is it about connection with my family? We all get in the bed and we watch the show together or with a spouse or Um, just your quiet time alone. I just want to be able to do my reading and I want it in bed where I feel physically comfortable. Can we set up a reading space outside of the bed for you, right? What can we do to help with those brain associations? But if that's really important to you, once you're on a good path with the good sleep, let's say you've been sleeping well for three months and you want to bring those things back two nights a week, hopefully not two consecutive nights a week, but you want to do that, then sure. If you start finding that your sleep starts suffering again, then that's something you're going to want to take out. But it may be for some people that you don't even have to remove those things. There are other changes that can be made that sufficiently help manage your sleep. So you can continue to do those things. So you don't have to have excellent sleep hygiene in order to reset your circadian rhythms and really get your sleep on a good path.
0: But some people do. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds like you were saying like in the beginning, it's harder and then it gets a little bit easier at the 30 month
1: mark it gets, it gets much easier
0: neuroplasticity and what that has to do with sure. all of this
1: sure well so so this one is really about the hypothalamus and um working with our circadian rhythms. And then so neuroplasticity is more about these neural pathways that are created in the brain. And so that would be behavioral patterns, maybe that people have engaged in or thinking patterns that people have engaged in, right? So if I keep traveling down this road and I keep worrying about, um, the worst case scenario with my pain, then it can become a super highway. I think about it kind of like, um, all the highways in San Diego, these inner intersecting, um, highways. And I don't know. I just remember driving down in San Diego the first time and getting lost on all these different highways. Right. And that some of them are quite large. And I think about those as these thoughts that have gone over again and again and again. If I do this thing, my pain is going to get worse. My pain is going to get worse. My pain is going to get worse. And so anytime I need to do those things, or I'm thinking those those thinking patterns, that worst case scenario, I'm on this super highway that those thoughts just happen automatically for me now. It doesn't take any effort, it just comes. And they come again and again and they get stronger as it's become the super highway. That's that thinking highway for myself, right? If I can start having a shift in perspective, if I can view things differently, if someone can give me some hope that I can latch onto that I start seeing for myself, I start creating some exit roads, right? Like a mindfulness practice, can be an off-ramp that I take. I'm gonna focus on the anchor of my breath. I'm gonna be present and grounded in this moment, right? And so people can take that off-road and get off of that thinking highway that is unhelpful thinking pattern, right? That's leading to greater and greater distress. So I'm gonna start making more exit roads, um, off-ramps. I'm gonna make some little um, side roads, right? What are some healthier ways of thinking about my pain? Or instead of thinking that I'm a damaged person, right? That I have this... um, disability or damage, that now what's a different way of looking at that that might be help, healthier and more helpful for me, right? So if I can see myself as a survivor or someone who is well-managing and making progress um, with managing their distress, their pain, their sleep, all of these things, again, they're interacted, interactive, then if I'm taking those side roads, those can start getting stronger. So this is a new neural pathway that I'm creating. It's a new way of looking at something, a new way of being, behaving, um, thinking, or identifying. And if I can start doing those more and more, and I may need a lot of reminders. Oh, there I go again. I'm, You know, in this worst case scenario, thinking pattern, I'm back on that super highway. Where's my exit? What am I going to do? What's the skill I'm going to use? And so now I do this skill to ground myself in that moment. And I get off on that exit. And now I'm feeling better and I start making those pathways stronger and stronger and let weed start growing over that super highway, let it shrink down. Now that pathway's built, right? Um, it's in there. I think about it kind of like riding a bike or learning to play a musical instrument that you can tap back into that because that highway's there. Even if weed start growing over it, you can jump back on that road. And that's like riding a bike. Maybe you haven't ridden a bike in many years or played a musical instrument in many years. And then yeah. You start doing that thing again and it's kind of rusty. You know, you're wobbly on the bike, but then you're cruising along pretty quickly. The same can happen with these unhelpful thinking patterns or super highways that we can get back into. We can fall back into those patterns and get back in flare up zone. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is there anything else that um, we didn't touch upon or maybe any advice that you'd want to give to anyone who's listening?
1: there is so much we didn't touch upon because (laughs) chronic pain is such a massive, a massive thing. But I think this is, um, this has been great. I appreciate you having interest in all of these areas and looking to help so many people um, by providing information for them. The probably the quickest thing I could say is finding the right interdisciplinary group, the people you can really talk to and sometimes peer support others who can relate to chronic pain can be an incredibly powerful. I think of this um, milieu, like the, the the group itself, this educational group that you are a part of, other people who are learning how to manage their pain or people who may be a little bit more advanced in it than you, right, may have completed some courses you've been in um, and they can serve as like a peer mentor, right, that that can be an incredibly powerful, um, say, provider, intervention, part of your treatment team. And so really working with others who can relate to what your experience is, what's been helpful for them, Um, learning from them and sucking up some of that hope right you end up giving it to each other and I think that really helps people stay on the path of finding tools that work for them
0: yeah totally that's I I love it I love this advice it's really straightforward and and simple and after that uh, I I know it's it's going to help a lot